Hey there, it's Debbie, and welcome to Playback Friday. Most Fridays, I re release one of my favorite conversations from the archive. So, unless you're a longtime listener of the show, there's a good chance you haven't heard this one yet. And even if you have, you just might get something completely different from it listening to it this time around. So we tend to deal with emotions in a variety of different ways, often depending on, you know, who we are and how we've been brought up. So um, we certainly have parents who really talk about kids' feelings, but we also have parents who unknowingly, you know, they say, there, there, don't worry, there's nothing to worry about. And the message that gives to kids is, my emotions aren't important signals, or they're things to be sort of brushed under the carpet. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm happy to be bringing you an important conversation for our current moment. I'm talking to the author of the new book, When the World Feels Like a Scary Place, Essential Conversations for Anxious Parents and Worried Kids. And it seems like it's the exact right book for this exact time in the world. I wanted to have a very practical and helpful conversation about how to handle those sometimes difficult but important conversations we are all no doubt having more than usual right now, or are perhaps wanting to have with our kids, but we don't know where to start or what to say. Because we as parents and caregivers often have our own emotions and anxiety surrounding scary, uncertain, and unsettling current events making it really difficult to know how to both broach and be in those conversations with our kids. That's why I'm happy to bring to the show Dr. Abigail Gewertz, a child psychologist, mother of four, and a leading expert on families under stress. Abigail is also a professor in the Department of Family Social Science and the Institute of Child Development at the University of Minnesota, where she has devoted her career to developing and testing award-winning skills-based parenting programs that promote children's resilience. I was able to preview a copy of Abigail's book, and I can tell you it is truly full of examples of essential conversations, as in actual scripts with dialogue, talking points, and prompts that are age-appropriate and centered around different issues. In our conversation, Dr. Gewertz explains the reasons why it's essential to have these conversations, how to make sure your own anxiety doesn't get in the way, and what simple thing to do each day to facilitate more open and thoughtful conversations with our kids. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Gewertz. Hello, Abby. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Debbie. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, your book kind of landed in my lap at the perfect time. And, you know, your book is published through Workman as well, which is who did Differently Wired. And so I know your publicist and she sent me a note. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is the book that all parents need right now. So I'm so excited to get into all of it. And before we do that, I always ask my guests to just take a minute to do their own introduction. I've already read your your formal bio, but just take a few minutes to introduce yourself and what you do in the world. Thank you, Debbie. Well, I am a mom of four. My kids are older. My youngest is 17 years old. My oldest is 26. It's hard to even say that. But like every other parent, we, my husband and I gave birth and no one had told us what to do. Um, I happen to have 
a professional advantage, which was that I was a psychologist by training, but that conferred no personal advantage in bringing up our kids. And and it was a thrilling, it, it still is a thrilling and exciting ride and sometimes an impossible ride. And it's, it's really the best job I've ever had. Um, and when in about the mid 2000s, 2015, 2016, I began to notice referrals to my private practice increase specifically with anxious children and very anxious parents. I began to sort of look around and think about the state of the world. And I was doing more international work as well. And I looked at the numbers and I just saw skyrocketing increases in anxiety and depression among kids in teen suicides. And at the same time, the world seemed to be undergoing a really high degree of tumult. And um, you'll recall 2016, um, very divisive time at home and abroad, politically with huge numbers of migrants, migration at a scale not seen since World War II, um, horrendous school shootings in the beginning of um, lockdown drills in school, and then increasing awareness of climate change and that existential threat. And I began to think, my goodness, my kids were out of diapers by then. They were all beginning to be in their teens. And I just wondered how it would be to be a parent of a young child then. And um, that's when I decided to write the book in late 2016. Um, so it wasn't a book that I started thinking about just when the pandemic hit. But boy, it was hard to think that things could unravel more and they have. So I'm very glad that I could could write this book. Yeah, again, it's so practical and covers so many issues and, and including the pandemic, you know, the book as we're recording this comes out tomorrow. Um, so I love that you were able to address that because I think this year has been a rough one. I, I know it's been a rough one and it's, it's been very confronting and really challenging parents to kind of up their game and we need tools. So I wanted to actually just start by asking you about our role as parents in shaping our kids' point of view. So, you know, you talk about this in the book, we are kind of their first exposure to difficult subjects and the way that we talk to them is going to shape the way that they think about all the issues that are so important and divisive. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, the importance of us having these conversations and and are there right versus wrong conversations to have? Right. I would argue that parents are their kids first and best teachers. And we knowingly, intentionally or unknowingly, unintentionally shape the way our children not only think about things, but really engage with the world. Most of us do it unintentionally. I think parenting can be so overwhelming that just making your way through every day is a significant accomplishment. To be intentional about the values that you want to transmit to your kids is another level still. And I certainly, as a parent of young children, just focused on the survival. I mean, I had four kids under the age of nine. And it was just organizationally, it was a, a huge struggle with two working parents, four young children, and just juggling everything. So in the book, I urge parents to do a simple exercise that helps them think about what it is they want to transmit to their children. And it's just a really brief exercise that encourages parents to think into the future and think about how their children talk about what the parents have taught them. 
So how do we teach our kids? Well, we teach our kids through thousands, tens of thousands of conversations that we have every day that mostly we don't plan, that sometimes are uh, sparked by our children bringing something or by our children's reactions to something, and sometimes they're sparked by us. And they occur over the dinner table or they occur when uh, we're helping them with their bedtime or morning routine. And sometimes they're at the bus stop and sometimes they're in the car and they're in lots of different places. And um, I argue that most conversations are conversations that parents would want to have, because if we think about how we want our children to learn about the world, wouldn't we rather they learn it from us than from the school bus or their friends, or their friends' parents, or their teachers, or or other adults. And certainly there are huge contributions that other adults can make to our children's growing up. But if it's an important issue, I would argue that it's really something that we parents want to talk about with our kids, preferably first. So it sounds like being kind of ready to seize on moments. What I heard you say is that many of these are unplanned, which I agree with. I think I used to think that I would have these, oh, we're going to have this talk right now. And this very kind of Brady moment where we'll sit down or an after school special moment and let's discuss this. But really, it is about being prepared when things come up, right? A little mention of something that was said at school or um, our child brings something up at the dinner table, like you said. Is that right? That's exactly right. Often it's not our dance to lead, it's our dance to follow or to match our child's footsteps and there's we want to be really careful not to be intrusive in the way that we have conversations with our kids and often parents find that when they are available when their children want to talk that's a much more powerful opportunity for a conversation than when we choose and we try and force the issue and also again that you said this is many 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 conversations it's not a once and done kind of thing this is ongoing, especially, you know, the audience for this podcast, which is differently wired kids who often, whether they're gifted, or they are very strong willed, or maybe a little less flexible in their thinking, they often require a lot more evidence to, to think about things than your neurotypical kid. That's right. That's right. And um, in the book, what I urge parents to do And I imagine that many of the listeners of your podcast do far more than this, but I urge parents just to take 10 minutes a day to have an essential conversation. And it doesn't even, you know, it mostly might not even feel like an essential conversation. But um, the reason I suggest that is because I was shocked when I looked at the results of the American Time Use Survey, which asked parents and people how they use their time. And one category of time use is uh, talking with children. And what I found that was so shocking was that 80% of parents didn't even list talking with children as a category by which they spent their time. And I'm sure that's not because they don't say anything to their children, but it's because mostly you're talking with your kids when you're trying to get them to eat or to school or to other, you know, get ready for bed and things like that. But the good news was that of the 20% who did report, time spent talking with their children they reported more than half an hour a day however on average that comes to three minutes a day across the population of parents and I think if everyone took just 10 minutes uh, for an essential conversation maybe not when you're doing something else primarily we might um, we might find that we're 
getting better at it. We're more able to respond to our kids' um, strong negative emotions or, you know, intense urgency around an issue that's causing them distress, for example. Yeah, that makes total sense. Well, I want to get into some of the essential conversations, especially bearing in mind what's happening in the world as we're recording this. And before we do that, could you just spend a few minutes talking about what our goals are in having these conversations, maybe thinking about the different ages of our kids? So what would our goal be in having conversations about difficult subjects with our younger kids versus our teenagers? Right. So our ultimate goal would be to help our children ultimately. So maybe this is a mission and not a goal, but ultimately to help our children grow up to be engaged, confident, and compassionate human beings. And of course, that's a massive, really a big goal. And of course, that can be broken down into multiple small steps. But the reason I mention it is because the small steps that we need to take in every individual essential conversation, that's the term I use for these conversations about difficult issues uh, like climate change or violence or uh, social justice or divided society, is that we need to be able to understand how this issue affects us parents. Because what we want to do in this conversation is listen to our children and our children's concerns and not have them be clouded by our own worries and our own preoccupations with the issue. So the first thing we need to be able to do is regulate, respond to our own emotions about the issue so that when we're sitting with our kids, we're truly able to hear them, to listen to them, to hear what are truly their concerns, which aren't necessarily the things that we think they're worried about, and then to respond to those concerns in a way that empowers our kids. So for example, using a problem-solving process whereby Together, we would brainstorm solutions for whatever the issue is, whether it is your child's worry about going back to school, for example, or whether your child's upset that he or she can't see his or her grandma because of COVID-19. Um, and the idea would be then to con- conduct this conversation, have this conversation in a way, in a place that enables you to really frame it very po- positively and have your child and end up feeling that there are things that they can do rather than feeling overwhelmed and helpless, which is so much, so easy for us to feel in the wake of these huge issues. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. I was just thinking about the conversation we had with, I have a 15-year-old son talking the other night just about so much of what's going on. And we've been going out to protests and, you know, living in New York City, which has been very shut down more than many cities from COVID-19. And it's just felt like a really hard time. And, and, you know, really, it was about creating a space for him to he really just wanted to share hard things, you know, the hard feelings and, and how rough this is. And, like, I didn't try to put a positive spin on it, too, because it didn't feel appropriate. I, I really just was empathizing in that moment. So is there, you know, especially when you're dealing with older kids who may be more you know, they're just, it's maybe having more existential uh, crises and thinking about these things and trying to to make sense of it all. Is there a desire also to just hold a space for them and to kind of feel neutral or engaged without necessarily trying to to solve some of these problems we know that we can't solve, right? 
Well, I'm so glad you said the words positive spin because I want to really make sure that what I was saying before was not that we need to put a positive spin on scary things at all. So I'm really glad you gave me the chance to clarify that. Actually, what you just said in terms of holding the emotions is really important. And so when we listen to our kids, what's most important is to acknowledge, identify and validate how they're feeling. That's most important. Why? Because we want our children to understand and learn that their emotions are important signals. So by saying to our child, you know, when, and I don't know whether you want to give a concrete example with your 15-year-old, we can use that. But when um, a child, for example, says, I'm really scared to go outside uh, because I'm worried I might get coronavirus, um, a parent the, the opportunity to focus on the way that child's feeling allows a parent to really validate that child. So I might say to that child, if it was my child, and when you feel scared, I can see that you have your eyes are wide and um, you look scared in your face. And I wonder how you feel scared in your body. Um, does your stomach have butterflies? Because I know when I get scared, I feel butterflies in my stomach. How about you? And and I can see you look like you're kind of hot. Um, so sometimes people's hands get sweaty when they get scared. Um, and that gives the opportunity for your child to connect their feelings with the sensations they have inside their bodies and later with the way they're thinking. I'm scared and I don't want to go outside because I'm scared that I might get coronavirus. So that's the first real step when you listen to your child to be able to identify and validate their emotions and the problem solving. And actually, thank you also for raising the question about whether we need to problem solve all the time. Not at all. Um, there are quite a few examples in the book where there's no problem solving. However, I do think it is important to end a conversation about a scary event with hope. Because when we get overwhelmed and we feel powerless um, we can easily get sucked into a cycle of just feeling worse and worse um, and feel so helpless. And the reality is that there are many things that we can't do anything about, but there are, there's always something that we can do. And I think the power of instilling hope is that you um, show that wherever you are, there is always something, however small it is, that can be done. But the tricky thing is making a space for the emotions and not doing what as parents, I think often we have the instinct to do, which is saying, there, there, things are going to be looking up, or it's not so bad as you think. Um, so it's a tricky, it's a tricky balance, Debbie. Mm -hmm. And does it look different for different ages? A hundred percent. So teenagers can tolerate more of the, this is really tricky, and they understand, and you can't pull the wool over their eyes. Um, they want to talk about existential questions, and they can tolerate, um, and they can understand more. Um, but whereas with three to five year olds, um, you're going to have a much more concrete conversation. We can't see grandma uh, because she she is one of many people or some people who really can get very sick from the coronavirus. And so we don't want to give it to her by accident. Um, but let's think about some of the things that we can do for grandma. Right. So you've had this conversation, whereas with 15 year olds, of course, it's far more nuanced and complex. We'll be right back after this quick break. 
We just celebrated our two-year anniversary of Gotcha Day when we adopted our sweet Haskell, my cat who acts like a dog, plays fetch, and who I'm pretty sure has sensory processing differences. Are you getting a new pet soon? That means you'll need to think about getting the necessities like food, toys, a bed. Something you may not be thinking about, though, is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. There's so much more to maintaining a healthy gut microbiome than eating a balanced and healthy diet, travel, certain medications, and of course, something many of us have plenty of in our daily life, stress, are just some of the other factors that can totally throw off our systems. Enter Ritual. They created Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Their supplement includes two of the world's most clinically studied probiotic strains to support the relief of mild and occasional bloating, gas, and diarrhea. I like Symbiotic Plus because it delivers all this goodness in one single nested minty delayed released capsule designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract. And because the capsules don't require refrigeration, I just keep them on my desk so that I get that helpful visual cue every morning. Plus, they're easy to bring with me when I travel. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Can you talk just to connect the dots for me? Why you talked about connecting the feelings to what's happening in a child's body and helping them recognize that, you know, my, are your hands sweaty or are you feeling hot? Talk about why that's such an important thing to do. So as parents, and it's not just parents in the, it's the world. I mean, we, you know, never mind, we don't get an education in parenting. We don't have to pass any test to become a parent. We don't have to get any license. I have to renew my dog license every year, but I never, <laughs> I never got a license to be a parent. But also in our society, we rarely talk about feelings. I think in schools, they're doing a better job with social and emotional learning curricula, but it's not something I think comes naturally to most of us. And so we tend to deal with emotions in a variety of different ways, often depending on, you know, who we are and how we've been brought up. So um, we certainly have parents who really talk about kids' feelings, but we also have parents who 
unknowingly, you know, they say, there, there, don't worry, there's nothing to worry about. And the message that gives to kids is, my emotions aren't important signals, or they're things to be sort of brushed under the carpet. And what we know from the work of John Gottman and Lynn Katz and other really wonderful researchers, uh, Nancy Eisenberg, is that when we as parents ignore, dismiss, or worse, punish emotions, you know, when we say, don't cry, big boys, don't cry, um, and those kinds of things, we send messages to kids that cause them to try and bury their emotions. And that puts them at higher risk for things like um, depression, feelings of depression and anxiety and things like that. Um, so emotions are really important to pay attention to. Yeah, I guess it just builds their emotional IQ, which is something, as you said, we we all need. For sure. So in your book, you have these three questions that parents should ask themselves when they're looking to have a difficult conversation. I loved those. And I, as a way to kind of get more into some of the conversations, could you walk us through those thinking about what's happening right now with a lot of parents are wondering, how do I talk to my child about what's happening about George Floyd's murder, about what's happening with the protests around the United States? Could you maybe use that as an example um, as you walk us through these three questions? So thanks, Debbie, for pointing that out. Really, I sort of suggest that parents ask themselves three questions before they have this essential conversation with their children. And um, you asked me to give the example of the horrendous killing of George Floyd. Um, so the first question you want to ask yourself is, when's the best time to discuss this? And we don't always get an opportunity to choose the best time. But one of the things we need to think about is when is a time for me to discuss this where I won't be distracted? And maybe even more important, I will be at my calmest. I will have had an opportunity to think this through myself first. So, you know, often I'll suggest to parents, when's there a time after the rush of the day, maybe uh, after dinner, you've cleared away the dishes. There's a little bit of a lull before bed, but it's not too much, but it's not right before bed so that your child doesn't go to bed thinking about this, things like that. The second question is, how can I put my feelings aside to make this about my child's needs and not my own? And that really gets at what I was talking about before in terms of thinking about what can I do to address my own concerns about this issue. So take some time, whether it's a walk, a few deep breaths, run yourself a bath, just take a little bit of time to reflect on how you yourself are feeling. And I find that when we have a chance to reflect on how we're feeling, even if we don't spend a long, long time on it, we're much more able to be in the moment and focus on our children rather than having our own preoccupied thoughts rushing through our heads. And then the third one is, what and how much information should I share with my child? And Debbie, we've been talking about kids of different ages. And of course, how how old your child is and also who your child is, is going to determine this. So in general, the older your child is, the more they understand, the more they will likely have already heard um, whether it's from media, from their phone, from other children. Um, but think also about your child's needs. Is your child a more anxious child or a less anxious child? 
um, a child who can deal more with ambiguity or less with ambiguity. How engaged is your child? How much will your child care about this? And so that those are all things that you might want to think about. So, for example, with the murder of George Floyd, with a teenager, you would probably assume that your child's heard a lot, certainly by now. But teens really like to engage in and are able to engage in discussion about quite complicated issues. Um, you are going to talk about discrimination and racism, maybe, and you're going to talk maybe about police brutality and then uh, alternatives. You know, what are alternative ways that, that with the with the votes, the vote that most recently came out of the Minneapolis City Council last night about dismantling the police department? What does all that mean? Um, protesting, what is peaceful protesting and why are we seeing riots and looting and things like that? Those are all things, discussions you can have with a teen, but um, to have those kinds of discussions with your very young child runs the risk of really, you know, disturbing them and also introducing ideas that they really can't understand. So, for example, a five-year-old child doesn't understand that death is irreversible, which means that when people die, they're not coming back. That's a complicated concept as any adult who's lost someone close to them and then and then has subsequently, you know, seen them or done a double take in the street when they thought that they were sort of hearing the voice or seeing the person. It's a very difficult thing for us to understand. And so that's just one example of, of something that three to five year olds really have a hard time understanding. So when you have a very young child, you want to really tailor your explanations for them to be very, very concrete. Um, so it could be, for example, a bad thing happened and somebody got hurt um, when he wasn't doing anything wrong. And with a very young child, you want to really hear your child. I mean, with every age child, you want to hear concerns. But with a very young child, often kids just want to know whether they're going to be safe. And so helping them to understand how that relates to their own safety is very important. And in the book, actually, I have a conversation that was really guided by my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Bravada Garrett-Akinsanya, of uh, parents of uh, African-American parents of an eight-year-old boy um, in a situation where uh, a black boy was, I believe, hurt by the police. And how they discussed that with their child in relation to their child's own worries about safety um, could provide some some preliminary guidelines for parents. Yeah, I appreciated that. That whole section, part two of your book is essential conversations. And you've got chapters on talking about violence, talking about natural disasters and climate change, the perils of technology. You, you have a chapter talking about social justice, uh, talking about our divided society. So you really do give some nice frameworks for conversations, including the example you just gave of having the talk, which I know is something that families of color have to have the talk with their kids, um, that white families don't necessarily have that same talk. And I think it's really helpful too for families with white kids to have a talk about the talk with their kids right. so that white kids are aware of the plight of their friends who are black and brown. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So can you talk with us about some of those other essential conversations that I just mentioned? Um, I'm curious to know 
how you researched those or how you kind of honed in on what you thought were the most important conversations that we need to have with our kids? Right. I focus on five classes of what I call scary world events. And um, they really emerge from both my research. I've, I've, I've spent almost all my career studying children's exposure to violence and what parents can do um, to buffer children from these kinds of scary events. Um, and in, in that chapter about violence, I, I talk a lot about violence in schools, but not only about violence in schools, also uh, racial violence and prejudice against uh, religious minorities. Um, obviously, lockdown drills have become a huge issue, and it's terrifying. And I've spent a lot of time talking with school personnel about uh, lockdown drills. And so, and actually, in my first meeting with my editor, she told me that they had just received their, their son was a kindergartner and they had just received an email the day before from the school telling the parents that the first lockdown drill was going to be held the next day. And the editor said to me, what do I tell my child? And that became the basis for the conversation about lockdown drills. So in addition to violence, of course, climate change has become a huge topic of concern uh, for parents, for everybody, really. And so I talk about some examples related to climate change, both in terms of climate change as an, you know, as a, sometimes a hot button topic of discussion for teens, for example, and for people of different, uh, different political persuasions, but also the very reality, the very um, harsh reality of ex the um, huge increase in extreme weather events here in the United States, whether that's fires or tornadoes or severe storms, things like that. Uh, then there's the issue of uh, social media and never, right? And even when I was, my, my oldest uh, were young, have we ever been exposed to such intense 24-7 news coverage and the fact that now, and I'm sure it's younger than 10, but at least at, at last look, the average age at which a, an American child got a cell phone was 10 years old and something like you know, a huge minority of nine-year-olds have cell phones. And so kids are seeing things on their cell phones from, you know, weather warnings to amber alerts that may or may not be during the school day, or certainly if they're, uh, if they're, if their schools are locking away their cell phones to and from the school on the bus or um, even after school in their bedrooms, that parents don't have a chance to filter, at least at first glance. But also we're seeing more and more horrendous incidents of things like social media bullying. And as parents, whereas we can monitor our children's activities when we can see them, we often do not see what happens um, online or on social media, certainly in instances like Snapchat, where the messages disappear really quickly. So that was the rationale for the social media, the um, social media chapter. And then uh, social justice, I think it's pretty, pretty uh, self-evident, sadly, now in this era of the murder of George Floyd. But divided society, I think, over the last, you know, 10 years or so, but certainly intensely over the last five years, we have seen such divisions in society, such um, hot issues, people not being able to sit around the Thanksgiving table and talk about 
uh, much because of the divisions even within families around issues like immigration, um, other you know political issues like climate, things like that. So that, that was the rationale. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. Lynn, this time of year, parenting can be such a fluster clucks. You've come to the right place. I'm Lynn Lyons, and I've been treating anxious families for over 30 years. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law and co-host Robin Hudson. Join us for Fluster Clucks, a podcast for parents who worry. Wait, that's everybody. Yeah, these last few years have felt like one long anxiety attack for so many. Why do you think parents are always surprised that a podcast about anxiety relates to them, even if no one in their house has an anxiety disorder? Well, worry is human. Everyone does it. And anxiety shows up when we face uncertainty. All the parenting tips you've taught me have been essential. I love to break it down into skills we need to manage worry in our families. We've covered so many topics depression, burnout, meltdowns, perfectionism. Don't forget scary mothers-in-law. Right, but of course that's not my mother-in-law. Because that's my mother. And a listener. As a psychotherapist, I like to teach parents and kids how to respond to everyday moments in healthy ways. Managing anxiety really can be taught. It really can. And I'll even tell you what to say. We talk about serious stuff, but without being too serious. Anxiety wants everything serious. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when we're laughing, even about the tough stuff. I mean, it's very thorough. Again, I just appreciated the range of conversations that you have in there and that you you share a full conversation, um, which is that's how I learn is by really observing and seeing how this might play out. So I just really appreciated the language. And it was kind of like eavesdropping on some conversations, but it's just great tools and language that I think all parents could use and just get us thinking about, okay, how can I be more prepared for when this comes up and be more proactive? Well, that was really the goal, Debbie, to give parents a full script. But I think 
and I hope this will that parents won't take it to heart that the but that you know that this is supposed to be a, a play by play you know a, a word by word script not at all I mean the idea for the full scripts was simply to give examples that apply principles um, for parents rather than parents feeling that they're going to fall down if they can't do it exactly as it's written. So hopefully the intent uh, it comes across that the goal here is to apply principles rather than a word for word. Right. So I want to ask one more question. I'm just wondering, what do parents often get wrong when talking about these things, you know, are there things that you've seen mistakes, common mistakes that parents make when looking to discuss sensitive or difficult topics? That is such a great question. The two mistakes that parents most frequently make, and I, I'm a parent too, <laughs> um, are really driven by our desire to protect our young, which is sort of a, what we all have to do, Right. But what that translates into when, especially when we feel passionate or worried ourselves or preoccupied with an issue, whether it's we saw a post or a picture of our child on Instagram that is that we worry in 10 years time when he or she wants to become a politician, will bring them down um, or whether we are just so distraught by something that's happening or we're so sad about our own child's distress about something that happened to them with friends or in school, that what we do is we get caught up. And our distress at our child's distress or our own distress at what's happening in the world completely clouds our ability to do what ultimately, if we were able to take a step back, we would value as the right thing to do. So I think these are unintentional mistakes that parents make. And I give a lot of examples in the book. And believe me, I've been guilty of them as well. And I think what happens is where, you know, my dear, dear colleague used to say, families are the crucibles for strong emotion. And what happens is there's no place other than our family where our emotions get so caught up. And sometimes it's so hard to just step away or just recognize it before we say the very thing that we didn't mean to say. Well, I imagine that just like when we screw up with our kids, that we can go back and repair, that we can do the same thing, right? Just if we've said it wrong one time, we always can go back and have a do-over and re-engage in that conversation in a different way. Thank goodness for that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> and yes, I mean, I think your message implicit, and I hope it's implicit in the book as well, is forgiveness, right? Let's not be perfect. Um, let's also instill in both ourselves, and I talk about gratitude, but but I think that's also related to the ability for us and our children to forgive each other. Yeah, such an important lesson right now. So. Before we say goodbye, I would love if you could share where people can reach you, where they can learn more about your book. And then if there's, I'm just putting you on the spot, is there kind of one last takeaway, one thing you really hope people listening to this podcast will leave with? Thank you, Debbie. So first of all, people can reach me on my website, which is www.abigailgewertz.com. I'll spell it because it's hard. A-B-I-G-A-I-L. G-E-W-I-R-T 
Z or one word dot com. And you can also find a the sample conversation about coronavirus there. Um, I think if there's one last nugget I'd want parents to think about, it is what messages about the world and about the things that are going on now are messages that you want your child to take in. And when you think about that, that will set you on the path to being more intentional about the kinds of conversations you have and go have those conversations more and more and more or over and over again and try and have one a day. <laughs> and don't feel that you have to predetermine the topic and don't feel that you have to set the time, follow your child, pick up on what they're saying and grab that as your opportunity. That's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. And listeners, I will have links to Abigail's book on the website, When the World Feels Like a Scary Place, Essential Conversations for Anxious Parents and Worried Kids. It's really wonderful. And again, just so needed right now. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share with us today and have this conversation. Thank you, Debbie. It's really been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting. Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co., and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.